Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, once again, it's a real pleasure for me to be back here this morning. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, worshiping with the first service. I'm so grateful for the worship team that lead us in a quiet, unhurried time of focusing on the greatness and the majesty of God. You know, I'm, I've been a um, Pastor Dave mentioned I was a pastor for 35 years and 36 years, then I've been retired for a couple of years. And one of the questions I've periodically asked myself is that if I were to go back and preach all over again, what would I do different? And I think one of the things that I would do for sure is to preach a lot more on the experience and the expression of Jesus in our workplaces. Because that's where most of our congregations are, and they spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week of their time. And mercifully, God has been giving me some opportunities in the last two or three years to uh, begin to focus on that a lot more. And especially this Sunday and next week is just a wonderful opportunity for me to keep doing that. And so I'm really looking forward to that. And I just want to share with you some things that have slowly been coming to the surface of my own thinking as I've, I have been reflecting upon that. I want to actually continue what uh, Laurie started last week in building a biblical uh, framework uh, for looking at work. And quickly, just by way of reminder, what we learned last week was that God is at work and God takes great joy in his work. And Jesus continued that for us. It was pointed out that he worked for six times as long as he actually had this public ministry. You and I have been created in the image of God and we've been given the same responsibility to work and to enjoy our work. However, because of the fall, while work has not been cursed, the ground has been and work itself, the arenas in which we do the work are now much more challenging. But work is still a gift from God. And yet at the same time, we have to be careful not to get our identities from our work, but in the God whom we serve and whom we represent and who will reward us for well done work. That's what we learned last week. And as I want to continue on that, I ask myself the question, what if I had made my journey the other way around? I worked for 11 years with Atomic Energy of Canada after graduating as an engineer and then went to the church. I asked myself the question, now knowing what I do in church work, if I were going back into the spheres where most of you are working, <coughs> what would I take with me? Because I've come to the conclusion that they really aren't that different. There is no division between the sacred and, and the secular and what you learn in one place easily transfers to the other. And as a starting point, I want to go back to how the fall and human sin has complicated the workplace. What do the thorns and thistles look like today? Because most of you are not doing agricultural work, raising things. So what does thorns and thistles look like there for you? A 2013 Gallup poll on the state of the North American workplace showed that North American workers are growing more disengaged from their work. <coughs> Excuse me. Of the approximately 100 million people in North America who hold full-time jobs, 30% only are engaged and inspired at work. 50% are disengaged, or what Gallup described as kind of present but not inspired by their work or their managers. 20% are actively disengaged. Disengaged employees are more likely to steal from their companies, negatively influence their co-workers, miss work days, and drive customers away. Another survey found that a huge part of the problem was relationship with co-workers. Your job might be killing you, literally. More specifically, strained relationships with co-workers 
could be negatively impacting your health and longevity. That's the conclusion of a 20-year study conducted by researchers at Tel Aviv University. That study found that those who died were significantly more likely to have reported a hostile work environment. The workers who reported little or no social support from their co-workers were two and a half times more likely to die during the 20-year study than those who said they had supportive bonds with their co-workers. Unfortunately, the same article noted another 2011 survey that provided evidence that workplaces are becoming less supportive and less civil. That's what thorns and thistles look like today, a toxic when it comes to the relational atmospheres and functions, which is why we desperately need the Holy Spirit, because the work of sin is countered biblically and theologically by the work of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, in that one specific command to be filled with the Spirit that's outside of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it says, You do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So a life that is filled with the Spirit of God manifests itself in relational transformation, marked by these four things. These are the four participles grammatically that govern the verb to be filled with the Spirit. We are to be speaking to one another. We are to be singing and making music in our heart. We are to be thankful and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6 mentions the three three arenas in which this is primarily to be worked out. In marriage, in parenting, which is the home, and then in the workplace. And so if the effect of sin has been to create a relationally toxic environment in the workplace by and large, it's not a surprise when the New Testament exhorts us <coughs> to work out a spirit-filled life again in the workplace. It is these twin dimensions of sin and spirit in the workplaces that I want to talk about. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> First and foremost, watch out for the sin of pride. The Desert Fathers labeled sin as pride as the deadliest of the seven deadly sins. <coughs> I'm so sorry. Excuse me. Why? Why is it the deadliest of the seven deadly sins? It is the quintessential mindset of Satan himself. <coughs> the New Testament, other biblical scholars tell us that probably two passages of scripture that probably refer to the mindset of Lucifer before he was expelled from the garden. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, it says, <coughs> How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, here's the heart of the devil before he fell. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Grasping for equality with God characterized by an upward mobility, I will climb higher and higher and higher, was the essence of the mindset of the devil. 
it is not surprisingly the essence of the first temptation. How sin entered the workplace and the world. For what did the enemy say to Adam and Eve? If you do what God told you not to do, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will become like gods yourself. So grasp for godness was the essence of that temptation. Assert your independence like I did was the unsaid theme there. It's also deadly because it's ubiquitous. It's the mindset of the devil. It's the essence of the fundamental temptation and therefore it affects every one of us. There are some sins that some of us are not particularly bothered by and probably never will be. Each one of us has different challenges. But when it comes to the sin of pride, every single one of us has a problem. C.S. Lewis, from whose writings I've learned a lot about the Christian life and theology in a practical sense, illustrated this beautifully when he said, if you doubt this, think of a time when you were in a group and a group photograph was taken. When that photograph was handed to you, who did you look at first? <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> Follow-up question. What usually determined whether the photographer did a good job or not? <laughs> you got it, right? Yeah. Every one of us has the problem with it. And it has unique opportunity to flourish in the workplace. In Genesis chapter 11, we read about the um, third great human rebellion that's recorded in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Genesis 11, 4. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The command after the flood and when Noah and his family were, were saved and protected, the command was once again to, to spread out to multiply, spread out, and fill the earth. But they said, no. We're going to just become insignificant little groups of people all over. No, no, let's do something. Let's stay in one place. Let's centralize. Let's make this tower. And the tower was a symbol of, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. And for, for the Tower of Babel today in the workplace, we can substitute climbing the corporate ladder, the academic ladder, the social ladder, the recognition ladder. Because it all has to do about making a name, name recognition. It's ambition. Eugene Peterson in his book, Earth and Altar, talks about this. He said, our culture encourages and rewards ambition without qualification. We are surrounded by a way of life in which betterment is understood as expansion, as acquisition, as fame. Everyone wants to get more, to be on top no matter what it is the top of, is admired. Aspiration, on the other hand, is an impatience with mediocrity. It is the channeled creative energy that moves us towards growth in Christ, shaping goals in the spirit. And then notice, if we take the energies that make for aspiration and remove God from the picture, replacing him with our own crudely sketched self-portrait, we end up with ugly ambition. Let me read that again. If we take the energies that make for aspiration and remove God from the picture, replacing him with our own crudely sketched self-portrait, we end up with arrogance. And the problem with this is that it's always divisive. Pride is the essence of the mindset of the devil. Pride is the essence of the first temptation. Pride is ubiquitous. It affects all of us. 
It flourishes in the workplace and it always divides. Here's the reason. Other sins, at least for a little while, have the capacity to unite us. A group of guys gathered together to break into a bank are united for a little while at least. <laughs> Until it comes time to divide up the money maybe. But pride always divides. And you know why that is so? Because pride is not content in being rich. It has to be richer than. Pride is not content in being intelligent. It has to be more intelligent than. And here's the problem. If you've got two people, each one wanting to be better than the other, sheer logic tells us that that's impossible. Because if A is richer than B, B is poorer than A. If A is more intelligent than B, B is less intelligent but wants to be more. What does that do to the relationship? You build a wall. So while you're building your towers of Babel, you're also busy building walls with each other. That's why the workplace is so toxic. With division. Because pride affects everybody and pride always divides. I mean, what hope is there? That's why we need this spirit. That's why we need this spirit to produce within us the mind of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 to 11 is the quintessential passage. This is the mindset that is the exact opposite of the mindset of the devil. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at, I want to come back to that word grasped in a minute. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the quintessential opposite mindset of the devil. Let me unpack it for us. Let me go back to that thing at the center where he says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at. He already was equal with God, but he didn't. Think of it as something to be grasped. This word grasp in, in the Greek occurs only in this place in the entire New Testament. Therefore, we don't have other usages of it to get an understanding of what it really meant. Contemporary Greek used it in at least three different ways and taken together they inform us of the mindset of Jesus. Which, so it is a mind that was characterized by something it didn't do before it did. The first way in which the word grasp was used was what we call clutching, clutching onto something. It's mine. And it's amazing how quickly it gets ingrained into us. Have you ever tried to take a rattle out of a baby's hand? That quickly they know how to close their fist. That's mine. So that's holding something tightly as opposed to holding it loosely. That's one way in which this word grasping was used. The second way in which grasping was used is not holding on to something tightly, but grasping for something that you haven't yet got and wanting it, wanting it really badly. Again, children are an amazing example of this. Have you ever noticed two kids are playing in a room and there's a toy in the corner that neither one wants until one goes after it? We don't, we're not very different when you go older, by the way. That's grasping for something that is not yet mine. So clutching on to something that is already mine instead of holding it loosely, grasping for something that is not yet mine, instead of waiting for it to come. The third meaning, which is probably the heart of it, 
has to do with exploiting, using power to promote yourself as opposed to others. Uh, the best way I can illustrate the meaning of this word is that imagine some group, maybe it's a condominium association that I'm part of, maybe it's a, a group of coaches in a sports team, maybe it's a ministry team, in, in a, I don't know what it is, but let's assume that there was one individual in that group uh, who's not particularly charismatic, doesn't have a winning personality, isn't very gifted at articulate, their opinion doesn't count very much. In fact, nobody ever bothers what they think or even to ask them. Now imagine if over a weekend you discover that that person has won the lotto 649. What happens to their influence? It skyrockets now. Everybody's interested in that person. All of a sudden, this person now has some power that they can then use for their own advantage. That was the third way in which this word grasping was used. I call it exploiting. So the mindset of Jesus was a mindset that was characterized by these three things. He did not clutch onto something tightly, in this case, equality with God, but let it hold it, held it very loosely, which is why he was able to empty himself into the incarnation. Secondly, he didn't grasp for what was not his. We say, what, what was not Jesus? Well, according to this text, universal acknowledgement, the name of Jesus above every other name, wasn't his in the beginning. Before Jesus came, how many hymns were written to Jesus? What group of people ever gathered together? They worship Yahweh, but Jesus was still there, worthy of all the praise. No one was worshiping him, no one was known. But he waited for that time, when in the fullness of time, he emptied himself, came to this world. Therefore God exalted him and gave him a name that's above every other name. So he didn't clutch equality with God, but was willing to release it when needed. He didn't grasp, but waited for God's exaltation to come in God's time. <coughs> and he did not use his powers as God to exploit others for his own advantage. That is the essence of the mindset of Jesus. Satan's was, I will, I will, I will. Jesus was in Gethsemane, thy will, thy will, thy will. That's the fundamental difference. And if we see the effect of the satanic mindset in the divisions in the workplace, it is no surprise that what we desperately need is to take in the mindset of Jesus into the workplace. So let's just imagine for a minute. What would your workplace look like if you was characterized by groups of people who refused to clutch onto something, but held it loosely? Maybe there's a reorganization that will happen in your workplace and all of a sudden, you've lost a certain position that you had. Somebody who's your peer is now working over, uh, above you. You're going to hold it loosely? If you had been grasping, it would have hurt a lot. If you'd held it loosely, it wouldn't bother you at all. What if you refused to exploit people but actually used your power to serve people? That, by the way, is what humility is. When, it says, when he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourself, that doesn't mean you pretend that you don't have gifts in certain areas. That doesn't mean someone who's not as gifted as you are is better than you. That's not what it means at all. It means that you 
regard the areas in which you are better than them as an opportunity for you to bless them and serve them. That's the essence of the mindset. <clears throat> I, I, I was the beneficiary of such a gift for 16 years. Because when I left Atomic Energy of Canada and became a pastor, I didn't become a senior pastor. I was the preaching pastor, but Bud Downey was my senior pastor at that time. Bud was, had gone to Bible college. He had years and years of experience. I had none. I had never gone to Bible college. I had no experience as a, in, in working in a church. And yet, for those 16 years that we worked together, every Sunday morning, Pastor Bud would step back from the power position in the church. Doesn't matter what titles you have, the pulpit is incredibly powerful. And he stepped back to allow a man 15 years his junior, who had much little experience compared to him, to take over. And he didn't do it reluctantly, he did it joyfully. He would protect my time to study. Sometimes on, when we had snow outside early in the morning, I'd be in my study praying, going over my message again and getting my heart ready. And he'd be out with the shovel, shoveling the sidewalk and the, and the handicap ramp when he could easily have ordered me to do it. Whenever I needed uh, opportunities to go to a, take a course or whatever for professional development, he, he always provided the resources to make sure I got what I needed to keep growing because I needed to study. Years later when I realized the importance of sabbaticals and decided to take a sabbatical and I talked to him about it, he, he legitimized it, went to bat for me even though he'd never taken one before. And in 1992 when I was speaking at the General Assembly of our denomination, Pastor Bud was the one who showed up in his car every evening at the hotel to pick me up, ferry me over, and bring me back. Here was a man who was using his power position as senior pastor not to exalt himself, but to serve me, who reported to him. I saw this in action for 16 years. So what if we refuse to clutch? What if we refuse to exploit? And what if we refuse to grasp and just let God exalt us in due time? That's why this text says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That was a word that was used by Aristotle before it ever became part of the New Testament to describe people in political circles who push themselves on their own agenda. And, and the word conceit comes from two words which means empty glory. So do nothing out of that. You know, the sad part of it is any glory that we get by pushing ourselves, he said, is empty. <laughs> and it's empty in two ways. First of all, you probably are not good, as good as you think, so it's empty in that sense. But even more so, when you get what you want, it doesn't satisfy you. It's still empty. So do nothing out of rivalry. Do nothing out of empty glory or conceit. But wait for God to exalt you. And you know how we're going to pull this off? Not in our own strength. <laughs> it's one thing to understand the mind of Jesus. It's one thing to understand what it means to refuse to clutch, refuse to glass, refuse to exploit. It's one thing to understand what downward mobility looks like. Who, Though he was God, became a man. When he was a man, he became a servant. When he was a servant, he became a criminal on the cross. 
and therefore god it's one thing to understand it it's another thing to pull it off you can't do it by ourselves that's why ephesians 5 says 18 says keep on being filled with the spirit and do it out of reverence for jesus the work of the spirit is to magnify jesus so that he becomes adorable and worthy and yes we sang those magnificent songs and i i'm so glad for worship leaders who are gifted with strong voices and great musical skills because i don't have any of those skills but i love to sing and i would never dare to sing if mine was the only voice but because it can be buried in all your voices i love to be led in worship but listen your real worship begins when you get to work do you adore the mindset of jesus that you praised so that you want to become like him It is the extent to which the Holy Spirit makes Jesus glorious that we will actually pursue a mindset like this. That's why Sunday worship is so important. It's all part of preparing you for that. But that's next week's message. Now, what if exaltation doesn't come? Jesus humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. What if we practice this and the humbling never uh, exaltation never comes? What if we never get promoted? What if you're continue? What if you're as- assigned to obscurity? Oh boy, pride cannot handle obscurity, right? So, where are we going to learn to handle obscurity? What do we do then? This is where King David gives us some very important insights. There are 14 chapters in the Bible devoted to Abraham, that great hero of our faith. 14 chapters devoted to Joseph. <coughs> 11 to Jacob. 66 chapters to King David. We know more about King David than we know about anybody else in the Bible. The interesting thing is he was a layman. He wasn't a pastor, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a prophet. The central story in the Bible is a story of a layman don't ever say again i'm just a layperson the bible is about you not about us god has chosen to highlight one of you as the person about whom we know the most in the bible here's something else about the life of david there isn't any miracle recorded in the life of david isn't it amazing that the person about whom we know the most in the bible is a person whose life there's no miracle david's life trains us to see the supernatural in the unspectacular ordinary work of life and mark my words to begin to live like jesus in the workplace is a miracle it takes nothing less than the supernatural power of the whole it's just that it's quiet subversive underground little by little day by day week by week month by month and nobody knows what's happening that's a challenge to obscurity and so we need training in that cuz david spent a lot of time in obscurity do you know that when samuel anointed him and says the next king what did he what did he do after that he went back to the sheep couldn't have smelled very nice right i don't know i'm not a sheep farmer <coughs> and what did he do there in obscurity what did he do after the sheep were buried for the night apart from the occasional lion and bear of course you know david looked inside 
David knew how to get in touch with what was going on inside. Psalm 19 verse 12 says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. David was aware that he was a flawed person on the inside because of sin. And he asked God to examine that. He said, search me, O God. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous or harmful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. David was given to inner exploration. And asking God to deal with the effect of that sin inside. And whatever he found there, he took to God in honest prayer. Because we have David's Psalms. It's interesting that the person about whose exterior life we know the most in the Bible is the person about whose interior life we know the most as well. Because we read all he wrote. And in his Psalms there's the full gamut of human emotion. All the ugly ones of anger and hatred and wanting revenge to lamentation, to woe is me, to how long, O oh God, and why, O oh God, as well as the soaring songs of praise. They're all there. Everything that was inside came out in honest prayer. But the beautiful thing is he also said it to music. Music has to do with ordering of that which is chaotic. So David was doing two things. He was countering the work of sin and he was furthering the work of creation. <coughs> because what did God do in Genesis chapter 1? He says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It was a shapeless mass of matter, space and time. <coughs> And then the Spirit of God was brooding over it. So Word and Spirit were working together. Then God spoke. And as the Spirit brooded and God spoke, Word and Spirit worked together and order came out of chaos. That which was shapeless took shape. That which was empty was filled. They were filled with the birds, filled with the fish in the, uh, in the sea and filled with vegetation in the land and filled with human beings. And so David was doing exactly that work of creation. That's what we learned last week, right? We are called to do what God's called to do. But we don't look at this side of it. We see the functional executing side of work, which is important. There was a garden to be tended. But David in obscurity teaches us that in the obscure places, it's time for me to look inside. Time for me to look at what is flawed and what is good on the inside and take them both to God. So that gives us some ideas of what we need to focus on. So in obscurity, we are called to deepen our life of intimacy with ourselves and with God. Because you need to be intimate about yourself too. You need to know what's going on. Listen, we need to develop an awareness of what we are feeling and why. We, especially in the evangelical community, we, we completely downplayed the role of feelings. When it's actually foundational, it drives us. Jonathan Edwards' great treatise, Religious Affections, has, has to do with that. And he says, when, when feelings die, everything's dead. Everything, all, this, all the ball games on Sunday afternoon, if feelings were stopped, everybody would stop playing. There may be feelings of pride, there may be feelings of who knows what they are, but feelings drive everything. And, and we need to get into the habit regularly of getting in touch with our feelings. What am I feeling? And then ask yourself, why am I feeling what I'm feeling? For example, let me give an illustration of my own life. There was, there was uh, a, a, a time when one of the uh, elders in the congregation, maybe he wasn't even an elder at that time, he gave me a book to read. I didn't want to read the book and I was not looking forward to meeting with him afterwards. Why? Because I knew this guy was wired like me, a thinker, which means he's probably thought through everything he's read in this book. What if I read the book and it was not what I liked? I would then have to meet with this person. Worse, I may have to change. <laughs> and in this particular case, if I changed, it would eventually fit into my preaching because my preaching flows out of who I am. 
and who I am becoming, which means there are some people in the congregation that might get upset with me, maybe even get angry with me, and I don't like angry people. I don't like change. So I discovered that all that uneasiness had to do with two things that were flawed in my life. Not enough courage and not enough trust in the sovereignty of God who can manage change. Because I'm, I'm both a risk-averse person and I'm a highly structured individual. They both have served me well, but this was the sin side of it. And so all of that came about. So then I was able to take it to God in prayer. I was able to ask a sovereign God to help me manage any change that would come. And I was able to ask Jesus to make me courageous if necessary. It all turned out okay in this particular case. But if I hadn't taken a few moments to ask myself, why am I feeling, what am I feeling, I would not have known those inner places that were fractured that needed to come to God. This kind of work is done best in the obscure places, not when you're promoted and you've got so many things to do. You have no time to look inside. That's next week's message again. Okay. <laughs> but learn to look inside. Take what you find to God in honest prayer. Because you see, you have to further the work of creation and counter the work of sin in your own life first before you can ever hope of doing it in the marketplace. In fact, they both happen simultaneously. So that's the first thing we do. While we're waiting in obscurity, learn to look inside. Ask yourself, get in touch with your feelings and why you are feeling what you're feeling. And then take what you know to God. And then secondly, serve others outside. Jesus came to serve. Remember the essence of humility was to use what is I am gifted at in order to not exploit but to promote others. What was David's first task as the future king? He went back to the sheep. But even when he went to the palace, what did he have to do? He was armor bearer and he was musician. As an armor bearer, he protected Saul's life. He was furthering the work of creation. As a singer, he was expelling demonic forces from the man. That was countering the work of sin. So you see, that's, that's such a beautiful picture of what we're called to do. Further the work of creation, counter the work of sin in himself, and then as he served other people. And Eugene Peterson, in his book on the life of David, says one liner that I just loved. He said, the spirit departed from Saul. You remember, because Saul was disobedient and did not listen to God, the spirit finally left Saul. But the spirit re-entered the palace when David walked in. Whenever David walked into the palace, the Holy Spirit showed up. Have you ever thought of your work like that? That Monday morning, although this Monday you won't go, Tuesday morning, when you go into the workplace, have you ever thought that the Holy Spirit is going with you into Bay Street and into your um, classroom, into the hospital where you're working? That's what's true. If you have the Spirit living within you, if you and I are living stones and the Holy Spirit lives within us, you, you take the Spirit with you to work. You don't leave Him behind in church. Many years ago, someone gave me a, a big calendar. It was a series of cartoons with that cartoon character, Ziggy. Some of you might remember Ziggy. Well, in this cartoon, Ziggy was standing in front of a full-length mirror and he kind of said, well... I guess it's you and me against the world, and frankly, I think we're going to get creamed. <laughs> Not when you have the Holy Spirit within you. No, it's you and me. It's the Holy Spirit and me into our workplaces. <coughs> and you serve. Because in the workplace, nothing sticks out like a servant. Servants are conspicuous, first of all, by the absence, and so in that context when a servant shows up, they are noticed immediately. 
it was driven home to me one day many years ago when I was still with Atomic Energy of Canada. It was lunch hour and a couple of guys liked to play chess and the rest of us who did just knew enough of the game to, to, to watch it would gather around with our, eating our lunches and kibitzing and giving advice and whatnot. Well, I was having a banana one day and I needed to throw the banana peel and didn't, there wasn't a waste paper basket near me. And across the uh, little cubicle, only maybe five feet away, seven feet away, was the garbage can next to the guy who was sitting. I said, hey, Ken, can you pass me the garbage can? I mean, how, how complicated a request is that? I was totally surprised at the reaction. Nothing like service is there. And he kicked the and those were his words. Nothing like service is there. In an environment like that, genuine service sticks out like a sore thumb. So serve people. Of course, it requires, it requires a deliberate shift in focus, right? Where relationships become all important. <coughs> As I close the service, I want to tell you one little insight that I've got once I retired. See, I lived in the Parsonage for 36 years. And Islington Avenue, right on Islington Avenue, with the du our church's duplex on the left, with the church on the right, and a massive parking lot behind me. I had no neighbors for 36 years. So when I retired, we just moved into a small community not too far, so we have neighbors again. And one of the things I've discovered is how wide open neighbors are to prayer witnessing and communicating the nuances of the gospel may be a bigger challenge. But I found that almost nobody resists prayer. The couple immediately next to us, they have a special needs child. And within six months of meeting them, we've had all kinds of opportunities to be praying for that little girl. And they've never said no. One evening, Sham and I were for a walk last summer. We were going out for a walk in the evening. And there was another couple in front of us, elderly couple. Maybe they were younger than me for all I know. But anyway... They were walking, and they were walking slowly. And so Sham and I decided to go around them, and we were going to go around the way. And the man turned, and he said, "Why you walk really fast. I said, well, I'm, I'm thankful I'm able to do so. And the wife said, uh, actually, I can't. I said, what's the matter? Well, I have problems with my hips. I said, you know, my wife had bad knees, and she had knee replacement surgery, and it's like a new set of knees for her. She just walks amazingly. And then the lady said, but there's something more wrong with me. You have to remember, I have, we have never met these people before in our lives. I said, what's the matter? She said, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. I said, you know, I'm a retired pastor. I've always prayed for people. Can I pray for you? Yes, please do. And there outside, not in the church, not with my parishioners, two couples who are total strangers to each other, outside in a neighborhood street, I prayed. The tears were just rolling down her eyes. And at the end of it, whether it was me or Jesus she was kissing, I don't know. <laughs> but she was deeply, deeply moved. Listen, your workplaces are full of people like that. And you have the Holy Spirit and you can put your conversations into sacred spaces any moment that you want. That's how you make the valley of obscurity a place that is fertile with fruit for the kingdom. So as we draw this message to a close, very quickly I have a just a reflection question. I'll give you 10 seconds for each one just to get you thinking between now and next week. First of all, is there any, any aspect of your workplace where you need to confess pride, ambition, rivalry, or conceit? Where you've been clutching, grasping, and exploiting?
Where specifically might you need to embrace humble service? What would practicing downward mobility rather than grasping for upward mobility look like for you specifically in the workplace? And for those of you who might be struggling with obscurity, what's going on inside of you? What do you need to take an honest look at? And finally, in whose life can you further the work of creation and counter the work of sin? Father, I pray that these questions will remain. You know what is inside each of our hearts. And will you bring them back to the forefront of our thinking at the right time this coming week? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.